0: to the Unpacked Project. We're your hosts. I'm Noel, And I'm Miranda.
1: We're here to explore all things social justice. It's through casual conversations, interviews, and storytelling that we hope to inspire others to take action towards a more compassionate and equitable world. Because honestly, it kind
0: of sucks here sometimes.
1: <laughs> For real. We can do better people. All right, let's start unpacking. Keith Hickman is the Executive Director of Collective Impact at the International Institute for Restorative Practices. In his role, he works with partner organizations to pursue the IIRP mission of positively impacting social health. Keith builds alliances with state education departments and national collaboratives, has served as an advisor to the Maryland Commission on the School-to-Prison Pipeline and Restorative Practices, is a partner scholar on the CASEL Equity Workgroup and is a member of the research, development, and design team for the California Safe, Healthy, Responsive Schools Network. In 2000, he helped found the Youth Justice Project at the Harlem Community Justice Center and has worked with school districts and community-based agencies to develop large-scale programs in multiple cities nationally and globally.
0: Thank you so much for being here today, Keith. We truly appreciate it. You've done so much work within this field, um, and that was a great intro, but can you tell us a little bit more in depth about the work that you do?
2: Sure. Uh, Thank you, Miranda and Noel, for having me on the show. Uh, First, let me start by paying homage to First Nations people around the globe uh, that for centuries have shown us the way to build and be in community. There would be no blueprint for this work without their teachings and communitarian approach to justice. So the roots of this work start there, and all of us as justice practitioners owe a great deal to them. Uh, The Opry Graduate School is dedicated to the advanced education of professionals at the graduate level and to research that can develop the growing field of restorative practices. And as an emerging social science that studies uh, how to strengthen relationships between individuals and as well as social connections within communities. Uh, with the goal of positively influencing human behavior and strengthening civil society throughout the world. I just wanted to make sure we had a framing definition of the role of IRP uh, as a graduate school and how it shaped um, me as a professional in the role and the work that I do. So we draw upon a wide range of fields to develop theory and practice and conduct research designed to address this global challenge and, and, uh, and model that potential by actualizing the principles of restorative practice in the daily operations, it's dealing with students, staff, faculty, administrators, and trustees, and its relationship with other people and organizations. So as the Executive Director of Collective Impact, I have the tremendous opportunity to lead and support cross-sector collaboration and collective impact initiatives with external partners here in the U.S. and abroad, uh, with media um, organizations, funders, policymakers, and others interested in strengthening civil society through civil engagement. And this is across many sectors and industries, including k 12 education, higher education, community health, work culture, climate, and of course, criminal justice. So I've been able to work uh, with national k 12 thought leaders and on the ground with school districts across the country. And I've really been amazed uh, at how local communities are implementing restorative practices to come together to address issues impacting their well-being and sense of self and sense of community. Uh, Places like Detroit. Uh, Michigan and Oakland, communities like Snohomish County, Washington, and even here in New York City where there is a restorative justice initiative made up of citywide multi-sector network of practitioners, advocates, and community members that are seeking to increase support for and across uh, restorative justice approaches for all New Yorkers.
1: So, um, I mean, there's just so much work that you're doing and so much that the communities are starting to do. It's really amazing. While restorative practice is a newer addition to the social sciences, it's gained even more traction with the current spotlight on our criminal justice system. So restorative practices has strong ties to school communities, but you know, like I said, we're seeing it utilized more in the prosecution phase, re-entry programs, even family and group therapy. So can you give us a brief history of restorative practices and other spaces that
2: um these methods are used in? Yeah, sure, Noel. Um, when we look at the last 50 years, the restorative justice movement originated from mediation or reconciliation between victims and offenders. That work coming out of Canada and eventually made its way to the US mm-hmm. and Europe under various names, but still based on victims and offender mediation. Uh, eventually, modern restorative justice broadened to include communities of care, real justice conferencing, family group conferencing out of the New- out of New Zealand, and in the late 1980s, community policing, and in the later part of the 1990s, what we call restorative practices. Um, so IRP grew out of the Community Service Foundation, County Academy, Academy, which since 1977 has provided programs for delinquent and at-risk youth in southeastern Pennsylvania. So our work really does come from the social service and human service field and the educational field in a little old town out of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, and in 1990, the newly created IRP Graduate School broadened its training to uh, informal and in proactive restorative practices in addition to the formal restorative conferencing. And since then, the IRP Graduate School, uh, which I shared earlier, is an accredited university, uh, accredited graduate school, has developed a comprehensive framework for practice and theory that expands the restorative paradigm far beyond the origins in criminal justice. And I must acknowledge and show tremendous gratitude. And you know, I, I know I'm always acknowledging honoring, but that's what we do in our work. Yeah. Um, I must show tremendous gratitude you know, for Howard Zare, who's considered the grandfather of restorative justice, uh, Ted and Susan Wattell, who built the IRP graduate school, um, Kay Peranis, Fanya Davis, Terry O'Connell, Mark Yancey, Paul McCole, March Thornsburg, John, and John Breathway, and many, many other scholars and practitioners that paved the way for all of us to do this very important work. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that as we are sharing our experiences and our knowledge of restorative justice and restorative practices, that we continue to honor those scholars that have paved the way over the many, many years, uh, which, is, which is very important. Yeah,
0: almost oh, definitely. I mean, you know, just with the interviews that we've done um, and our backgrounds in education, we've seen and heard how these practices work, you know. Um, And so I can only imagine trying to push this social science and, you know, in the beginning and, you know, people not necessarily believing it. So I'm glad that it really has made its way to where we are now. Um, Restorative practices is a broad term, but the techniques used are very specific with a focus on inclusiveness, relationship building and problem solving. Restorative methods, such as circles for conflict resolution and conferences, bring victims, offenders and their supporters together to address wrongdoing um, you know, it's been utilized with a lot of success. Can you expand more on how these methods work?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll speak a little bit specifically about the continuum of practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of course, there's the theory component and the practice, and you really need both. But yeah. the theory drives the practices. Uh, but there are continuum practices from informal to formal that can be applied proactively and responsibly to build relationships, repair harm as a way of strengthening community, Uh, for example, schools and neighborhoods, workplaces, um, criminal justice system. Um, And it's the the structure of affective statements and questions, uh, restorative circles and conferencing that allows the voice through storytelling to build empathy and repair harm for those that cause harm and were harmed. Uh, It is the storytelling. It is the narrative. Mm -hmm. It is the voice component. uh, Through a set of structured questions that allow scripts to unfold, about the past incident, the present feeling and thoughts, and the future actions that need to be taken. Uh, It's a part of being accountable to others and to the community. Uh, Simply, it is a way for those harmed or what we say in the criminal justice language victims to voice what they need in order to safely move on with their lives when an incident occurs. It is a way for those who caused harm or in the criminal justice language offenders to hold themselves accountable for their behaviors and actions in conversation with the folks they've harmed and the storytelling is about letting the truth unfold uh, in, uh, in repairing uh, the relational harm caused uh, and an opportunity to be, be right in community and you can see uh, those are the indigenous spirits you now the, the making of, uh, of uh, the communal justice components uh, so proactively storytelling is an opportunity in a way to strengthen relationships between individuals as well as social connections within communities And the traditional justice systems are not really designed to give voice to those that have been uh, impacted by crime and wrongdoing. In fact, it is more focused, you know, you think about it on punishment as a form of retributive justice, retributive justice, uh, than restoring what is needed for victims. So we really are more and more looking at the prevention Mm -hmm. and proactive components of restorative practices. So,
1: you know, it's such a focus on repairing harm, and um, you know, providing support, we can clearly see why it's played such a vital role in transforming classrooms uh, and learning environments. But restorative practices also disrupts the feeding of certain demographics into the cradle-to-prison pipeline. When we interviewed um, Noble Williams, who was on last week, one of the things that I, you know, I asked him was it that his access to practices like this while he was incarcerated seemed like it really changed the trajectory of his life. And his response was that it quite literally saved his life, which I felt was just so powerful to hear him say that. So can you share how this um, is also used as a prevention piece uh, in our school system, but also how it just affects communities um, that are util- utilizing these methods?
2: Yeah, I'll start by saying I'm, I'm, I'm moved uh, by that testimony. It's, it's those stories I just spoke about. That uh, just gives me chills, um, and it, again, it just proves the point that you know, um, you know, it, it really is uh, about relationships mm-hmm. and how we help people find their human dignity and how we give human dignity back to those that are harmed. And so, restorative practices—it's really been proven to be an effective approach. Uh, and I love the K-12 schoolwork because this is where we see some of the some of the greatest impact in the last, you know, 15 years, 15-20 years. But it really is about improving school climate and culture. And it points a spotlight on some of the root causes to disproportionality, which is what you're talking about, Noel, uh, and which has much to do with relationship and connectedness, power dynamics, and shifting the mental models with all of these influencing structural changes. So we're talking about from policies to practices to resources uh, and how that flows in a school and even a, a school district. So, when done in alignment with other K-12 programs, really such as PBS and SEL and, and other other thought leaders, uh, we see tremendous promise in changing the conditions that continue to foster despair, discrimination, and disproportionality for BIPOC communities that are most marginalized. And that's what the numbers are bearing out and have for quite a while. So we want to close that gap. Um, and that's a big piece of the equity work that, that you're hearing about. Um, you know, Dr. Ann Gregory out of Brookings University uh, is known for her body of research and restorative practices, and she's been one of the key scholars uh, on the subject. I mean, her breadth of research on the subject is noteworthy, like in 2015, uh, the Brooklyn Community Foundation initiated uh, the Brooklyn Restorative Justice Project, and their aim is to, be, to create a racially just and sustainable disciplinary model that can be scaled across New York City school systems and uh, to ultimately halt the school to prison pipeline for providing disciplinary alternatives. And in this way, the project really aims, is really at the forefront of RJ RJ Promises promoting racial and social justice. And already there's a number of positive indicators coming out of that that work and that study. Um, And uh, and really to create the building blocks for whole school change and creating relational ethos across schools, developing capacity for long-term sustainability. And so when we look at school districts, like other places like Jefferson County Public Schools in Louisville, Kentucky uh, you know, and uh, Pittsburgh Public Schools, recently a report coming out of Baltimore City, City Public Schools, uh, we're finding very, very similar uh, outcomes. Um, and those outcomes tend to be a decrease in behavior events, a decrease in suspensions, an, an increase in um, um, seat time, uh we're, we're seeing things around the closing of disproportionality gaps uh tremendous improvement in climate and, and, and in the culture of the school and many many other uh, uh, indicators in fact i would point my audience to really take a look at some of the larger studies like the rand study out of uh, with the pittsburgh public schools uh and it's the first randomized controlled trial study of that scale that uh, was a huge breakthrough in, in showing uh, some of the positive outcomes and, and indicators of restorative practices. So again, you know, um, we're, you know, this work is, you know, restorative practice is one of the, the larger initiatives that, that are being implemented in, in the school and climate and culture world across the country. But also I just want to point out again, it's extremely important that we don't do this work in silo and that we really do this work in partnership and in collaboration, which is part of my role as a you know, collective impact. With thought leaders at like Castle, the Collaborative for Academic and Social Emotional Learning, and you know PDIS uh, and and many other uh, uh, methods and initiatives and approaches that are existing in schools, we don't want to silo this work. We need to leverage every resource and opportunity to make sure that teachers and administrators uh, have everything they need to collectively change the climate and landscape in our schools.
0: You know well, that word collectively, right? I think that's almost part of what. The restorative justice or restorative practices foundation is about right connecting people to their supports and you know having a community that uplifts you that you can go to and and help, help helps hold you accountable you know as well. Um, ultimately, restorative practices it's a social ecological model and you know we've we've talked about that before you know, aside from this episode that focuses on all of the aspects of an individual's environment and their needs. So they look at the whole person, you know, what came before and what do they need after, right? So we talk about reintegration or reentry into society after prison and how most individuals are simply released or just reentered into communities and they they have no supports. You know, so Noel was talking about Noble, um, who we just interviewed our last episode and he um, had served some time, I think in juvenile, in the juvenile justice system and was released and then ended up going back to prison. Um, and he was just saying that the first time he was out, he had nothing, you know, he, he showed up back home, you know, his homeboys came through, they brought him a bottle, I think they gave him drugs to sell, they brought him a gun, and that, and they were supporting him the best way they knew how, right, in those types of communities, um, but they're communities that are filled with a lot of people that have also been harmed or victimized in other ways as well, right, so um, You know, it's that social ecological model lens that really provides equity to all and drastically reduces the chance of returning to prison. So how are you seeing RP directly impact recidivism rates across the country, um, or where have programs been implemented?
2: I I just absolutely love this question. Mm. Uh, It it, it just excites me to hear you ask that, because um, I think one of the great things about restorative practices is it's uh, it's cross-discipline. Meaning a purpose and role that it can play. And the community health field is really where we're starting to gain some traction here. Uh, and community health and equity and you know social ecological frameworks, these are all out of Healthy People 2020. These are all out of initiatives and frameworks that are already in place in there, are evidence-based. And so as you can see, uh, as researchers, as scholars, as practitioners, we really are trying, we're asking the question of where does restorative practices fit? In existing frames such, such as SEM and community health and public health, right? I mean, this pandemic just proves uh, how important you know, the repairing of harm and the building of community is, is, is at the forefront. And so, just a little bit, uh, just about uh, on the criminal justice side, uh, restorative justice, it's mostly applied to a number, uh, right now, it's mostly applied to a number of. Uh, Criminal and juvenile justice systems, including diversion, we see it in diversion, mm. uh, victim-offender mediation, family group conferencing, uh, and sentencing circles. Um, it also it, it also shows up in teen courts. We see it, you know, some of the elements in teen courts, implemented within various justice and non-justice settings. So some of the principles have been applied to reentry court. Uh, I had the opportunity of working at some of the first early reentry courts out of the Harlem Community Justice Center. Uh, with the Center for Court Innovation here in New York, um, and uh, as a way of reintegrating for, uh, formerly incarcerated juveniles and adults back into their families uh, and community at large, is what you spoke about, um, and so um, um, there's a study out of uh, uh, out of 2017 from George Mason University that showed that the overall that overall result results evaluating restorative justice programs and practices showed a moderate reduction. Uh, although a reduction in future delinquent behavior uh, relative to more traditional juvenile court processes. And you're talking about that. So we're starting to see data creep up and research creep up on the importance of how the practices need to be uh, uh, embedded in uh, community relationships, right? Mm -hmm. This is why I keep pointing back to why community health is really important. Um, And there was a promising findings in terms of delinquency outcomes for youth we're seeing uh, for victim offender conferencing, we see family group conferencing, arbitration mediation programs, and circle sentencing programs. So we've seen some positive outcomes in that. Youth participating in restorative justice programs had a great uh, perception of fairness. Uh, the real results also suggest that restorative justice youth uh, are more satisfied with restorative justice programs and have somewhat less supportive attitudes towards delinquency. And so there are these, you know, you know there's been these literature reviews of studies that are showing that uh, when we really focus on the conditions that uh, can positively shape uh, uh, behavioral change, uh, going back to the restorative practice social discipline window is that when we do things with people, we're more likely to be productive and cooperative and, and go beyond uh, as, uh, as changing their lives uh, and being much happier and much healthier people. And so when we use that frame and we teach that frame in community, community settings, and we already know that community folks are powerful to begin with. But when we bring them together, we look at how we can shape group dynamics. Uh, Places like in Detroit where you have peacekeeping circles, uh, where folks returning back into community have members that understand their pain, understand their need, understand that we need to support them. And when they come back to communities that are healthy, Are more likely actually to be healthy people. Mm -hmm. And so I can't stress enough why it's so important that this work live and grow under a community health framework. And also, that again points to that systems, you know, criminal justice systems aren't set up and designed to do this. Um, They should, but they don't yet. They haven't quite caught up. So the criminal justice field really is one where we, it's just gonna take a little bit longer. Uh, it is the most punitive, obviously, because it really is about, like I said, a, a tribunal justice. So, um, but, but community health, the well-being of people, and people returning. So we, so some of the things you're talking about, um, in terms of re reentry, that work can actually begin while folks are on their way, you know, transitioning out of prison life back into community, because we can start to do family group conferencing, family work, uh, those relationships that need to be repaired. And then when the person comes back into the community, they're coming back to support some services that are already in place that recognize uh, uh, the repairing of the harm and their need to be successful. So, and the forgiveness element, uh, the empathy component of this work. Um, and then again, this whole focus is on the needs of the community and the needs of those who have been harmed. Until we really do that work and give them voice, it's really, really difficult uh, to bridge that gap. I know that's a long-winded answer to your question, but I just, <laughs> this particular question just, I mean, I think there's so much tremendous opportunity mm-hmm. for inter- intersectionality of scholarship in this, in this work.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I think one of the big things that, um, you know, Miranda and I always talk about from doing all these episodes, obviously we have background in education, but we've learned so much throughout all, of, you know, our interviews. And one of the big things that we always talk about is just how interconnected all of these things are, right? Our systems, Education, criminal justice, um, our communities, and on an individual level, we are all interconnected and um, can have an influence on one another. You know, at so many different levels, and we see, you know, hearing when restorative practices are used in school systems, the positive impact it can have on social emotional learning, and then therefore then disrupting that school to prison pipeline and creating more, you know, access and opportunity, and then you know, learning from Adam and Noble just, and you, you know, hearing the research on when we allow this to be a part of the criminal justice system and be um, used in facilities, how it reduces recidivism and the positive impacts we're seeing from that. Um, but the, you know, there's multiple sides to always consider, um, especially in the criminal justice system when we think about offenses. And I think society tends to think that you know, if offenders aren't punished, and we've talked about, but that tends to be how we've always responded you know, in, in criminal justice is the need for punishment. Um, and not looking at allowing re- reparation, repair for harm um, on both sides. So again, thinking of the focus on healing, do you see that victims and victims' families are positively impacted by these practices as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, as an approach, you know, that that you know that focuses on repairing relationships and harm caused by crime um, while holding offenders accountable, you know, Practices provides an opportunity for the parties directly affected by crime victims and survivors offenders in their communities to really identify and address their needs in the aftermath of the crime so families tend to be uh, those who are most harmed in these cases uh, so victims have in, you know have an improved per- perception of fairness and greater satisfaction improved attitudes towards juvenile you know juvenile offenders and, and adult offenders and they're more willing to forgive the offender and are more likely to fill that the outcome was just uh, was just then uh, for then just for the victim uh, that caused caused the harm. So we see again outcomes related to emotional well being and and uh, in other other uh, areas. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit in this because you talk about families, but I, I want to talk about uh, a bit about uh, uh, relative to traditional juvenile justice systems and processing. That you know here in the U.S. Uh, we're starting to see family group decision-making or family group conferencing as formal restorative processes uh, that originated out of New Zealand and uh, and made its way to the Netherlands and our practices that are tied to national child welfare legislation in those uh, uh, places respectively. Uh, According to the Office of Victims and Crimes, there are are about 300 programs in North America now, maybe a little bit more, uh, and larger numbers in Europe. Uh, so the uh, Family Group Conference Center, FGC, uh, provides victims a- an opportunity to express their full impact of the crime upon their lives, to receive answers to any lingering questions about the incident, and to participate in, in holding the offender accountable for, for their actions. Uh, defenders can tell their stories through this process, uh, why the crime occurred, uh, and how it's affected their lives. And we see it mostly practiced in juvenile justice settings and sometimes in in violent crimes, violent crime situations. Some systems use court court personnel to facilitate the conferences. Uh, Others use trained volunteers. And regardless of the facilitator, uh, the results are promising to say the least that uh, uh, some structure of family group conferencing or family group decision-making, which places the power of the family at the center and the expertise in the sport on the periphery to support that power structure of a family. Uh, It it contributes to the empowerment and healing of the community as a whole. And because it involves more community members in the meeting, uh, that's called to discuss uh, the offense, its effects, and how to remedy them. Uh, A wider circle of people are recognized uh, as being victimized by the offense. Uh, We certainly learned that through a process called listening circles, uh, which has really, really uh, gained a tremendous amount of traction Over the last several months, uh, particularly on issues around the the election and issues around uh, racism uh, and the uh, number of murders uh, that's happening in our country, um, and issues around uh, the pandemic, you know, and COVID-19. And so, the in in uh, this work really does come out of the sex abuse scandals uh, in the Catholic Church, and just the listening circles were used as a way to provide healing at the community level uh, for those that uh, were a part of the community but were silent voices at the time. So we have to keep reaching out and expand to see community as more than just two people or a small group of people that were armed, but, but the community as a whole was impacted because of the shared values. Um, and so by involving a broader range of people affected by the crime, far more citizens become direct stakeholders in the criminal and juvenile justice processes. Uh, again, just there are structural things that we could be doing um, both uh, as part of the uh, criminal justice system and outside of the criminal justice system as part of community work, community organization work um, that really can can um, help, help families understand the power that they possess and understand the needs that they need to be healthy and well-being again. Um, and so this family, this family structure is a really important piece uh, and a touch point by which schools should be doing this work. Uh, criminal justice, I've already mentioned, should be doing this work. Probation should be doing this work. Uh, you know, youth serving organizations should be doing this work. There are a number of sectors and institutions that could be putting these structures in place to really help families heal. Uh, and This is really, I think, the most transformative work where it can happen. Uh, and the most important work, because we you know in families, I and mean, we all have families, but in our family, we, we tend to keep things secret, don't you know, let your business out there, those oh. kinds of things. But there's a lot of harm and hurt that goes on. Um, and we have to find processes and ways um, to be able to communicate and heal, and restorative practices are fantastic. way to do that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so what I'm hearing is everyone should be utilizing restorative practices. <laughs> you
2: know, um. as much as you can. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not the silver, it's not the fix it all, but it is a, it is a process and a way to, to communicate and, and, and find a language and, and deal with vulnerability mm-hmm. and rebuild trust yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, in order to, yeah. to take those steps right mm-hmm. no
0: i mean it really is amazing work and we sit here and talk about all the benefits that you're seeing from these studies and just having you know worked with youth or worked in within prison reform you know benefits coming out of schools the victims um, families communities and there's been some common language throughout various episodes that there's just so much lost potential and so many individuals are missing from communities because of our criminal system so, you know, again, we talk about all of these benefits, but what does community health look like and what are the potential impacts on our communities and neighborhoods when these practices are implemented?
2: Yeah, this is, this is good stuff. This is like an arrival and takeoff point for us at the IRP Graduate School because of all the years of work uh, coming out of criminal justice, the KT-12, and expanding the scope. In an interdisciplinary way, but the, the IRP Graduate School has created a multi framework uh, approach for improving community health and equity and through restorative practices. Uh, you can certainly find it on our website at the end of the interview. Uh, but the distinctive features of community health include community member engagement, multi sector collaboration, uh, individual groups and organizations work together to address health issues by taking into account the social and cultural factors relevant to the community. That's really important. Again, group dynamic work. Uh, restorative practices strengthens relationships between these individuals as well as uh, social connectedness within the community. And restorative practices can also help to increase people's personal and collective efficacy in doing the work. Uh, These positive outcomes influence a sense of community. Uh, People with greater sense of community are more likely to act in healthy ways and work with others to promote the well-being for all. And so the proactive aspects of restorative practices focus on building the community before a problem arises rather than responding after problems occurred. So this is important prevention work, and that's important to the field of of, of public health and community health, uh, to improve the social determinants in a community. And you can see we're starting to use language, not only just restorative practice language, but other language to really foster how these two things could operate uh, as a multi level approach. And so, when used as a universal prevention prevention strategy for everyone in the community, regardless of any specific risk factors that may or may not exist, restorative practice really can help create the social conditions for people to be healthier and have greater well-being. And that the idea that people are influenced by their environment is consistent with the proactive aim for restorative practice, which I've been talking about in this interview, and to build a you know a strong community environment in which people can thrive. So again, going back to Miranda, what you said about the social ecological model, it can be a useful guide for improving community health and well-being through restorative practices and the opportunity for cross-sector collaboration among community coalitions to influence the interrelatedness, the interdependence, uh, including those individual characteristics, behaviors, interpersonal relationships, and the environment, uh, organization, community, and public policy. So we talk about that SEM model as a sphere of influence, again, from public to interpersonal well sort of practices is the relational bridge that ties that influence together it is just so I can't wait to more you know as more and more scholars dig into this work uh, how it's going to make its way into into community, you know, community as, as, as part of building community connectedness and the, and the work that can happen at the municipality level mm-hmm. uh, in, in communities. So, boy, just imagine once uh, you know, once it makes its way into, into, you know, mayor's offices and, you know, city councils and they get the resource support and the policy support that really, you know, empowers communities to do the work on the ground in partnership with, with municipalities. You're really talking about a new way to do, you know, urban transformation and rural transformation.
1: Yeah. So you know, you said just imagine. So it actually, you know, leads into a question that we always ask um, everyone that we're interviewing at the end. You know, what would reimagining our country from a restorative practice lens look like um, if if we actually started doing some of these things that you just mentioned? Yeah.
2: the 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 exciting news is that there are many folks coming out of the restorative the earlier days of restorative practices and new thinkers uh that are tackling this question as we speak um they may not call it restorative practices but the spirit and and the elements of that are in what they're doing and i'll just point to a few folks that i think are are really leading the work and worth worth checking out if they could you know if you get a chance but uh So there are a lot of organizations around the country that are exploring these very questions, such as the Aspen Institute. They're doing some great work around citizenship, what the new citizenship is going to look like, and exploring questions around uh, better arguments. They're putting together these amazing projects that are very accessible to just anyone, and particularly local communities, to tackle. That's the civic engagement component of the citizenship work, right? Citizens University, Eric Liu's work—oh my! Tremendous stuff happening out of there. Um, you know, it, it, and you know, even the uh, and the founder of the IRP, you know, our International Institute, IRB Graduate School, Ted Wachtel, uh, who's now since retired, uh, but he has a uh, through his work with the building a new reality, uh, where their mission is to seek to challenge and push forward, fostering leadership based, you know, really fostering leadership. Uh, uh, creating a revolution, really, by conversation, advocating democracy in everyday life, where a non-partisan, evidence-based social movement that addresses six facets of society's, you know, society's needs. And he talks about it from learning, governance, care, justice, wow. enterprise, and spirit. And you know, this is providing both a roadmap and a frame, a roadmap and a framework for participatory learning, decision making, and action. It's building a new reality. I mean, at the Aspen Institute, they're talking about fostering leadership based on enduring values to provide a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues. You know, at Citizen U, they're envisioning a great civic revival across our nation, where the dream is a country in which Americans are steeped in a sense of civic character, educated in tools and civic power. I mean, you are seeing a movement of people that is placing this work in in and the elements of this work smack dead in our democracy. And boy, I mean, haven't we been needing this for a long time. So, um, (laughs) it's another thing that gets me excited about the work, right, it's (laughs) like, you're taking something that started off, you know, as as out of mediation and conflict resolution and has grown into the scholarship and its impact, not only in the US, but worldwide. Places like Singapore, I already mentioned places like New Zealand, Europe all around the all around the planet, you've got now thousands and thousands and thousands of practitioners that are taking this back to their community and implementing it in tremendously powerful ways. Um, so yeah, it is it is reimagining and it is using what you know and using what we believe and using what we know works and from a justice lens as a way to reinvent and reimagine what civil civil society could look like and should look like. Mm-hmm
0: i love it and we're gonna i mean clearly people are already doing this work you know and thank you for for all those references we'll link to them um in our show notes as we always do uh but that does bring us to the end of our episode and i can let me tell you i had chills just so many things that you were saying i truly miss this work i i value it at my core i've seen the transformation you know that it can provide to communities and spaces and people know, so um, for our listeners, if you are interested, um, please definitely check out some of our links. But before we go, I always do like to ask, um, where can we find you? What platforms can we find you on um, if we're curious about this stuff?
2: Yeah, so our website is Mm www.iirp.edu. And our Facebook address is at Restorative Practices. Our Twitter is at IRP Grad School. And our Instagram is at restoring under slash community.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Keith. Um, next week, make sure to join us for our episode on reimagining modern policing, how we can create social safety nets for our communities. Um, we'll be joined by Michelle Parent from uh, Whitebird Clinic in Cahoots uh, out in Oregon, where they're using some pretty fascinating um, models in terms of trying to uh, reimagine what police look like. They've been doing it for years and join us to hear about all the great work that they're doing out there. See you then.
0: The Unpacked Project is produced by Vicki Lee, branding and marketing by Raquel Avalos. Show us some love and be sure to like, subscribe, and
1: review our podcast. And to stay connected and up to date, follow us on Instagram at the
0: unpacked project. Shout out to all of our listeners who unpacked with us today. We'll see you next week. Peace. Hey, bye. Bye.